We want to welcome you again to Door Creek Online. So glad that you're joining us, whether you're in PJs or on the back porch, whether you're gathering with a group of friends in your living room outside in the garage. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for spreading the word. It's good to be together. And wow, what a week it's been. Once again, we've just run into just the hard things of life and it's hard to make sense of all that is going on in this world, our lives. So I'm just recounting some of the things that went on this week and are going on. I'm thinking about a president of a Christian university who resigns in disgrace for his own moral failings. We think about the fires that are raging out of control on the West Coast and then at the same time, Hurricane Laura comes and devastates the Gulf Coast. And then right here, right in our own backyard, we've got a front row seat to the brokenness of our world. Lives snuffed out, shots ring out, cries rise up for justice, even as buildings and businesses burned down and then there are the three children who were there in the back seat of Jacob's car who keep asking their grandfather grandpa why did the police shoot our daddy in the back oh well then let's not forget the ongoing saga of the COVID-19 pandemic 24 million cases and we scratch our heads and go, it doesn't make sense. We live in America, the United States. Like we've got all this technology, we've got all this medical advancement and we're leading in a lot of the wrong categories and it's hard. A good friend of mine who works here at church just a couple weeks ago had us all praying for his brother who had COVID. He's in the hospital. I think he was on a respirator. He's made it through that, but a couple weeks, not even days later, his uncle dies of COVID, and the next day, his mom dies of liver cancer. And to top it all off, he can't go to the funerals. His family lives in Honduras. And so, our loved ones are isolated, right, in their senior care facilities. We've maybe had the situation where, where we've dropped off a loved one at the ER, and we wondered, am I going to see this person again? And others who... Tell us they, they never did see them again. And it's, it's hard. We're living in a world that doesn't make sense. I mean, apparently, we could have had the virus, or right now we could have the virus, and we don't have a clue. This is crazy. I think my brother-in-law six months ago was telling me, he's a pilot for Delta, he says, Mark, there's never been a better time to go into aviation, he's telling his college son, you know, you ought to think about being a pilot and how things have changed, right? How things have changed, even this week, layoffs, more layoffs. I think of the, these two pictures. The first is O'Hare Airport, one of the busiest airports in the world. This is March 15, right? So at the beginning of the outbreak, people are clamoring to get home and it's chaos. And then literally this next picture is this week, at O'Hare. Are you kidding me? This week in O'Hare, the International Airport. I've been in and through that many times. I've never seen that. Maybe right now you're going, my life doesn't make sense. 
things that are going on in my life. Maybe they're not even the things we've just talked about. Doesn't make sense. What are you to do? When you just can't add it up. What, what are you doing to process it? Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and 10 brings us a good, good word. At the end of chapter 8 where we left off last week, Solomon says this about his quest to understand the meaning of life. He says, no one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Under the sun is his phrase for life here on earth. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. He said, look, I've been chasing it. I've been trying. And I can't figure out this riddle, this conundrum. Life is an enigma. It doesn't add up. So here's what we're going to learn here this week from Ecclesiastes 9. When life doesn't make sense, Solomon wants to tell us this. Remember, our life, your life, your family's life, your friend's life is in God's hand, in God's hand. So we're in Ecclesiastes 9, looking a little bit real quick at the end at a few points in 10. Grab your Bibles, open it up. We're in chapter 9, and on the heels of what he's just said, about you can't figure out the meaning of life. He says this in the opening verses 1 through 3. Solomon, so I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. There it is right there. The righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hand. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. We can have confidence that our lives are in God's hand, but that doesn't mean we understand what's around the corner, what's in the future. Is it going to be good? Is it not going to be good? Is it going to be love? Is it going to be hate? Verse 2, all share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices, the religious and those who do not, the irreligious. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid. To take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. And what he's talking about here is our destiny and divine appointment with death. And we all have it, but none of us have a clue. And so he writes about that in verse 12 in this way. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. That is our, our death, when it's going to come, right? As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times, by death, that fall unexpectedly upon them. That's what happened to my friend Ron McAllister a week ago today. I couldn't believe it. I've flown with Ron. He's a great guy, a great pilot, a safe pilot, always checking his aircraft. He, he's, uh, he's the one who set up an aviation school in his retirement. Ron was in Rockford. His, his airplane needed some repairs, and so his buddy flew him up to Rockford. This is a friend from our church back in Wheaton, Illinois, and they were heading home. Ron was going to take off first, and as he took off and he started to ascend, he couldn't get enough lift, and the plane went down 
and crashed. He's a good man. He was a generous man. He loved his family. He loved God. He was the guy on Christmas Eve at 12 o'clock after the 11 o'clock service in 2002 after Lori had just been diagnosed, my wife, with breast cancer, who came up to me and he had something in his hand and he put it in my hand. And it was a large check and he said to me, make sure you take your family on a good vacation this year. Caught in the snare of death. Verse 3, Solomon says, it's lurking behind everything. No matter what we've done or not done, no matter who we are, how rich or poor, the same destiny overtakes us all. But Solomon's clear in the back half of verse 3 that it's not our fault. It's not God's fault. It's our fault. So the hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. It just reminds us of what God said to Adam and Eve, our first parents, when he said, you got the whole garden, everything in it, but I've just fenced off one thing. You cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the day that you eat it, you will die. Really? I think you're going to be like you, God. They take the devil, the serpent, on, on his temptation and try it, and they eat and they die. They eat and they die. The shorthand for this teaching is in Romans chapter 6, 23, where Paul says the wages or the results of sin is death, eternal separation from God. So speaking of death, he goes on to talk about it's far better to be alive. There's hope and there's new perspective as we face the inevitable of death. Look at verse 4. Anyone who is among the living has hope, even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. There's the perspective. But the dead know nothing. They have no further reward. And even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. And so when life doesn't make sense, your life right now, remember your life is in God's hand. And so whose hand? God's hand. Who's in God's hand? Well, it says here, the righteous and the wise. So if you're unrighteous and a fool, probably not. No, 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 no. The Bible's teaching is clear. Psalm 24:1 makes it clear that God is the king over all things. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. The righteous, the unrighteous, the wise and the foolish. All that we do, good or bad, is in his hands, meaning in his control, not in our control. And what do we know about his hands? Well, they're good hands. They're strong hands. They're faithful hands. They're loving hands. God, in his grace, showed us physically his hands when he sent his son to this earth. And at the end of his life, his hands were nail-pierced as an expression of his love as he died in our place on the cross. So theologians speak of this concept of our lives being in God's hand as God's sovereignty, that he's in control over all things. And as you grow older in your walk with God and keep going on in your walk with God, 
this continues to be not a frustrating thing when you go, it doesn't seem like he's in control. Like, God, really? No, it's this, it's this ballast. It's this calm in the storm because we've experienced already, we've read about it already, that even though everything's out of control, I'm trusting God that you're in control and that you could actually work this out for my good and your glory. Oh, I could tell you all kinds of personal stories from my dad to myself, but you're enough of my stories. So let me give you one from Russia, the 1930s. Stalin, his era. Stalin ordered a purge of all Bibles and all believers. In Stavropol, Russia, this order was carried out with a vengeance. Thousands of Bibles were confiscated. And hundreds upon hundreds were sent to the gulags, to the prison camps. Years later, a mission agency sent some missionaries to this city to do ministry. When they got there, the Bibles that they had shipped ahead weren't there. And they're going, we need the word of God to tell people about God's love. And so they found out about this warehouse on the edge of town that apparently was still holding the Bibles. So man, they didn't know what to do. Like, should we go to the authorities? Well, they did. They prayed about it. They asked the authorities. The authorities said, yeah, no problem. You can distribute the Bibles. So they rounded up some helpers there from, this, from the city. And one of them was this young boy, this young man, who, if, if it were to be appropriately described, he, he was a little bit of a hostile agnostic. He, he was a critic. He, he wasn't a follower of Jesus. He had lots of questions and lots of doubts. But you know what? He could use the day's pay. So he was in. And so everybody's working. They're pulling Bibles out uh, of the warehouse. And then all of a sudden, one of the w- workers realizes, where, where's this guy? Where is he? So they go looking for him. And they find him weeping in a corner of the warehouse with a Bible in his hands. What happened that day changed his life. Here's what happened. Out of all the thousands of Bibles in the warehouse, he picked the Bible and he opened it up and underneath the cover of that Bible was his grandmother's signature. Are you kidding me? The one who loved God, the one who suffered for her faith. And at that point, he knew that his life was in God's hands. This wasn't a coincidence. This was Almighty God working out his purposes, bringing this man to that place, having him pick that Bible with his grandmother's signature that'd been waiting for him for how many years? Our awesome God. And so when we trust in a God who has this whole world in his hands as the spiritual goes, right? He's got the whole world in his hands well there's these beautiful marks that show that we actually trust that we're actually submitting that we're in a place of going God I'm glad that you God and I'm not and be God of my life I'm surrendering I'm trusting you every area of my life and we see these marks of a person of giving thanks and enjoying life and working hard and heeding wisdom and they all come out of verses 7 through 10 Here are the marks of a person who remembers and lives under this joyful fact that God is king and my life is in your hands, God. So he says this in verse 7. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. 
For God has already approved what you do, your thanksgiving. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you're going... There's neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. So these beautiful marks, and we're going to just do a little inventory. Like, do these mark my life? I believe that. I, I, I say I'm trusting this God who's in control of all things. But does my life actually bear the fruit of someone that actually is doing this, trusting this one, this king over all things, is thanksgiving, and enjoyment, and hard work, and following hard after wisdom, so we don't just hear it, but we heed it. Does that mark my life? Verse 7 talks about giving thanks. Look at verse 7. Gladness and joy flow out of this grateful heart. When we believe each day is a gift from God, we're positioned to see and thank God for his good gifts. It's the first quality. It's really interesting. Gratitude, thankfulness. When we believe our lives are in God's hands, we can focus on today and embrace today. When we don't have that confidence and assuredness, then what happens is we worry about the tomorrows. We worry about the, the certainty of it's going to happen one day, and I don't know when, and I'm kind of sick, and COVID's around. Is it going to be? Is it going to be me? But we're released and freed to focus in and live life today and embrace today and treat it as a gift from God. The psalmist says in Psalm 118, 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So the scriptures are clear. We're to give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for us in Christ Jesus for Thessalonians 5, 8. And so every day, you guys, when we eat a meal, when we unpack the groceries, when we go to our closet, like you did this morning maybe, or this evening, whenever it was, and you go, wow, I got a lot to choose from. It's just this reminder. Our lives are in God's hands, and all the provision reminds us of that, and our response is to give thanks. That's why we pray before a meal. We give thanks for God's provision, for his care every day, whether it's lavish or simple. It's faithful. He's faithful to us. There's the second mark. In verses 8 and 9, we enjoy life. Specifically, he talks about enjoying it and celebrating life with our companion. Here he's talking about marriage. But for those of us who are single, you can apply this to your friends, to the community that you do life with, the community that God's given you. Now, we remember back in chapter 5, verse 17, that sad picture of the lone ranger who's greedy and he just had this sad sorrowful life remember him he was eating in darkness separated from people frustrated and angry not not the picture we have here in chapter 9 no it's of community it's of a festival it's of a feast it is beautiful so this is a command it's not endure life with your wife it's enjoy life with the, with the wife whom you love. Not, not with the wife or husband that you're in love with. 
See, if we're in love with them, we could fall out of love with them if they kind of change the rules of the game and they're not sharing the love with us. And that's happened, right? We're, we're not feeling love. In fact, some of us are saying, man, this is a bummer. Apparently, I can't enjoy life because, man, there's not any kind of love going back and forth between me and my spouse. We're confusing the issues here. When the Bible speaks of love, it's not speaking about emotion or feelings. It's talking about this, a commitment of our will. We choose to do that. What do we choose to do? To seek the good of my spouse, of someone else, my friends, before myself, ourselves. It's a commitment. And this is the command that we are to enjoy life with the wife whom we actively love. Don't just have warm feelings. We give ourselves away like Christ did us, my life for yours kind of love. Now remember, God is never asking us to do something that we're incapable of doing. You go, well, you don't know my spouse. I mean, trust me, this, this is too hard, too hard. Now, actually, remember in, in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul's talking to the husbands, he said, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Give yourself up for her. And then he says, love your wives as you love yourself. That's natural. Guys, we all do that. We have the capability to love other people because we do it all the time for ourselves. The, the question is, are we willing when we engage our will, when our emotions are cheering us on. And here's the beauty. If you would take God at his word right now for that marriage that you think right now is hopeless, that marriage that you think is flatline dead, this marriage you think it is over and nothing good could ever come from it. Here's what I know. That as you take God at his word and you do your part of loving your spouse, even as Christ has loved you. Your emotions, they're going to catch up with your actions. And God's going to reward that. Give thanks. Enjoy life. Third, work hard. Verse 10, Solomon keeps talking about how hard life is, even how hard our work is. He keeps talking about the toilsome nature of work. But the mark of someone who submitted to Christ and his rule in our lives is we work hard. We're the best workers. We're the hard workers, not the hardly working workers. I love this quote from Jim Elliott, martyred missionary down in Quito, Ecuador, a long time ago. He said this, Whenever, wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. Wherever you are, be all there. This is how Colossians 3.23 puts it. Paul writing the church at Colossae says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, with everything you've got. As working for who? The Lord, for Christ. Not for any human being, not for any human master. And yet, verse 11 reminds us that we can be committed to working hard, but it doesn't mean that it's going to work out. Look down at verse 11. I've seen something else under the sun 
The race is not to the swift. What do you mean the race isn't to the swift? The fastest person always wins the race. Solomon says that's not how it works in this life. Get used to it. Get used to it. Or the battle to the strong. Nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. There's no guarantees, he's saying. And some of you right now are going, totally get it. Like, I, I've been working so hard. How many years have I put into the firm here? And this year, because of COVID, I'm, I'm unemployed. I, I, I'm one of the statistics. So I'm thinking of some of you small business owners right now. And you've never worked so hard. And you're wondering if you can make payroll this week. You're wondering if you can stay open yet another month. Work hard. Even though there are no guarantees in life under the sun. And finally, he says, heed wisdom. Heed wisdom. Don't just hear wisdom. Don't just be able to identify wisdom. Heed it. Follow it. Take its advice. Tune your ear to it. Before I read verses 13 through 18, I got to tell you the story. It's a great story that uh, comes right out of this passage. According to the French, the walled city of Carcassonne, I keep messing this up and I can speak French, so let me try it again. Carcassonne, mais oui, monsieur. All right, Carcassonne. Here's a picture of Carcassonne. It was under siege during the Middle Ages, and as the story goes, the people inside were trapped, and they were coming to the end, and they were literally starving. And though the walls were thick, it was just curtain time. It was just right around the corner. It was going to be all over. They were besieged, surrounded by uh, an army. They'd been cutting off all the supplies, but somebody had a brilliant idea. There was one pig left that they hadn't killed. And so they said, let's stuff the kid, the pig, with all the grain that we can get. And so they did. And then they chucked it over the wall. And when it landed at the feet of the besieging army, they looked at the pig and went, are you kidding me? They've got that much grain they're going to last forever. And they packed up and they went home. Listen to verse 13. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it. And a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise. And he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are no longer heeded. <laughs> We're living in a world that doesn't make sense. He's not remembered. What do you mean he's not remembered? He saved the city from mass destruction. And some of us are going, well, that's kind of how I feel in my old age. Just forgotten. He goes on, the quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So, to be sure, wisdom is better than strength. It's better than weapons of war. But here's the enigma. Here's the puzzle. That just a little bit of folly, and folly, biblically speaking, isn't just being stupid. Folly is about being sinful. 
In, in verse 2 of chapter 10, we read this. As the fools walk along the road, they lack sense and show everyone how stupid they are. Verse 2, the heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of the fool to the left. They're not the same path. You can't be a lover of God pursuing wisdom and at the same time have your foot and feet firmly planted on folly's path. You cannot play the fool and be wise. And so you're going to unpack it. We don't have time, but there's three things that he's going to say in chapter 10. First, a little bit of folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Just a little bit. Guys, we've got to wake up to that. We, we could have this long record of faithfulness by God's grace. And, and a little bit of folly this week, this year, could forever change the course of our life. I love how one commentator put it. It's easier to make a stink than create sweetness. In verses 4 through 11, he's going to say, Though folly is exalted, it's celebrated and praised. And oh man, has it done that in our culture today. Ultimately, it won't succeed. And then the final warning has to do with governing rulers. Though folly can reside in one person, this fool, it can destroy a nation. So chapter 9 asks us this question. When life doesn't make sense, are you remembering that your life right now is in God's hand? And is borne out by a grateful heart, an enjoyment, an embrace of life, and the beautiful relationships that he's given us in marriage. Is our life described as working hard or hardly working? And man, this is kind of like we're in, we're doing everything online right now, virtually. Seriously. Working hard or hardly working? Are we down wisdom's path? Or do we think we got our feet on both paths? There is no such thing. No such thing. God help us to find security and hope in this twisted, fallen world as we remember his hands are strong. His hands are good. His hands are loving. And there's no better place to be than making sure that we surrender our lives into his loving care. Let's pray. So, Father God, we pray that you would show us where we're at in this whole thing of gratitude if we're really a grumpy old man. Is that me, Lord? Am I a grateful person? Are we enduring life or truly enjoying life with the special people that you've placed in our lives? Are we committing to love our spouse? Lord, show us any residual places of laziness and sloth and show us where our feet are going down the wrong path. God, I just pray for the one who's never placed their life in your nail-pierced hands. Would you grant them faith? Would you help them find that solace and comfort and strength of knowing their lives and all that's happened and all that's happening and all that will happen are in your good, loving hands. We pray these things in Christ's name. For your honor and glory, amen.